Hey everyone, this is Leslie Jane Seymour, the host of Reinvent Yourself and the founder of CoveyClub.com. If you're liking our podcast, I know that you will also like the Covey Club. Covey Club is a small group of birds, and I called it that because I wanted it to be intimate, a place where you could find like-minded women who would have your back as you proceed through this challenging time of life. Covey Club has so many great services to help you learn and grow no matter what your goal. We have original content written by the best journalists around the world, weekly classes by experts who pass on actionable tips, and fabulous coaching and live events. Members tell me that what I've created is unique. Women like you come here to share and be their total selves. Some even call it magical. Come see for yourself during our special subscription campaign from January 5th through February 14th. See what all this Covey love and connecting is about. We really are like no other club in the world. Hello, all you reinventors out there. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am here to bring you one of those people who kind of, some people just make their way through different reinventions. That's what we find over time. And Marguerite A. Stryker is one of those people. And she grew up in Pennsylvania, studied in Berlin in high school, didn't know any German, was thrown in over there and learned German. And then she had a series of other things like that with her family relocating from Pennsylvania to Mississippi where she didn't fit in and she had to figure out sort of how to make her life go within a totally new culture where she didn't understand how people were speaking or dressing. And she said, she really had to figure out how to fit in and how to learn new things. And she said she had to really learn to listen. And I think that's a really interesting idea for many of us who are trying to reinvent ourselves sometimes. And I think a lot of us are really good listeners. Listening is one way to find your way in. And she took a lot of studio art, but never had thought of being a teacher and actually thought she might go to law school because that's where all the friends of her family were. They were all lawyers. But then she talked about how those lawyers, she would meet them at family parties and they were all miserable. So she didn't want to be a lawyer. Anyway, it's a long twisted story that eventually leads her to New Orleans, where she opens up a gallery and she becomes a very well-known gallerist in New Orleans and has a son and has to deal through um, a divorce and being a single mother and how how she did that. And of course, during Katrina, it's a long story about what happened to her home and all her art. She had just moved it all home in order to protect it. And of course it was the home that flood, flooded. Anyway, it's a long, interesting story. And through it, she decided to go back and get her, her degree in nonprofit management and then ended up finally at Habitat for Humanity. And so it's a long, twisted, winding road of somebody who is always learning, always interested, 
always finding the next thing. She worked for a conveyor belt company in North Carolina too, but she eventually found her way back to New Orleans and to Habitat and into giving back, which is something that she found was so important after living through Katrina. So I bring you the wonderful Marguerite and her very real, very interesting multifaceted reinvention because that in many cases is what all of us do. So here she is. So hello, Marguerite, how are you? I'm so glad to have you on today. Hey, Leslie, it's great to be with you today. So let's talk, you are a multiple reinventor. I love the reinventors who have done it many, many times. And let's talk a little bit. I always like to go back to the beginning, like, you know, what in your background got you to be who you are and made you move on to very different things. I mean, you know, that that's what's always so interesting is people who've made big leaps from to different sectors. Um, and that's what everybody's trying to figure out. So talk a little bit about where did you grow up? Um, and then how did you get your first job and where was that? Sure. Well, I grew up outside Philadelphia. I grew up on the main line out in Villanova and went to high school there. I was fortunate. I got to study abroad my junior year in high school and I lived in Berlin uh, and learned German there and uh, came back. And in the middle of my senior year, my parents uh, moved from Pennsylvania to Mississippi. And that was uh, jarringly different, uh, you know, growing up in a sort of liberal East Coast environment and then moving to the Deep South, uh, going to college uh, in Mississippi. It, it was shockingly different. I mean, I'm old enough that girls were wearing long straight hair and peasant blouses in high school. And, you know, I can remember walking into freshman psychology class and a lecture of about 200 people, and I was the only person wearing jeans. Everybody else was hair and makeup and fully dressed, and I just didn't fit in at all. And I would say that that experience of having to start over again, first in Germany, in terms of learning uh, a new culture, a new language, I spoke no German at all when I went over, um, and having that experience of living as an outsider uh, was something that has served me remarkably well throughout my life. Uh, it was painful at the time and I didn't think it was useful. I thought it was awful. I wanted nothing more, of course, as a teenager than to fit in and I didn't fit in. Uh, but then the same thing happened again in Mississippi and I had to really learn to listen. I had to learn to pick up social cues, uh, ways of dressing, mannerism, patterns of speech, uh, how to express myself and just learn, learn to cope with a very changed environment. And, you know, kind of looking back on it, um, that was, that was uh, pretty formative for me. And those are, those are things that I still look to because I have actually had to reinvent myself probably more often than one would really like. Um, but every time it's been interesting and I've never been bored with any of it. And uh, probably because you know, I have a lot of energy and I like to do things that are challenging and make me think and make me work and make me strive. And uh, once it gets too easy, then I'm, I'm ready for the next chapter. So you sound so much like me. It's so bizarre. I didn't know you had that in your background because I was a Navy brat. And so we were moving all the time and thrown into things in the middle of the year and having to adapt. And I totally understand that. That's so interesting. 
So let's talk about after school. So after college, what did you start out doing and, and what was your trajectory there? And then when was your first big career change? I thought, um, well, I had always taken a lot of art. Um, I had taken a lot of studio art starting from the time I was uh, quite a young child. Uh, and I took some studio art in college and a little bit of art history, but I wasn't an art major. I never aspired to be a teacher. I didn't even know what being a gallerist or an art dealer was at the time. Uh, I was actually a German, French, and English major and with a minor in political science, and I was planning to go to law school. And then, of course, after I graduated, uh, I started thinking further about it and hanging out with some of my parents' friends who were attorneys, and none of them loved their work. I mean, they literally, every single one of them, I probably was talking to the wrong people because I now know many attorneys who absolutely love their work, but uh, I was exposed to a rather limited number of attorneys and you know, only in a few fields. And I, I was just overcome with this thought that, oh my God, I can't do this. I, I don't want to do that the rest of my life. I'd be miserable. But then I had absolutely no clue what I was going to do. So I went to work for a friend who owned a bookshop and I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. And I literally didn't take a paycheck. I just got paid in books. And <laughs> I was living at home so I could do that. And uh, that, that was my first job. And I worked at that for a while and kind of figured out, okay, this isn't really working. Um, and I went and got a real estate license. But again, it wasn't something I had planned. It was, it was very much, um, it was more reactive than, than planning at that time. And uh, I was offered the opportunity to work for my uncle, who was a real estate developer in Northwestern Florida. And he was a, a tough guy. He was hard drinking, poker playing, deer hunting, uh, kind of Mississippi guy, but very old school in the sense of his word was his bond. He could, you know, he could, I don't know, knock back half a bottle of uh, whiskey in a night and still remember every number and everything that was said. And he started teaching me about business. Uh, my cousins were not interested in business, and I was. So he became my first real mentor in business. And he taught me how to structure deals, how to how finance worked, because I had taken no business classes at all in college. And uh, he gave me a seat at the table. So I was working with a group of older men. Uh, they were all the developers and his partners. And they put up with me because they had to, because he was the senior partner in the venture, but he let me hear it and take it in. And then periodically he would invite me into the conversation and say, well, what do you think? And I learned to kind of stand and present um, an idea or a thought that didn't necessarily go along with what all the guys were saying. And, um, that, that was a big experience too. Um, just learning how, how to think about money, how to think about objectives, how to uh, work with the team so that the person who's best suited for a particular task would be given it, even if they were junior or senior, or maybe it wasn't their regular title. So again, that being flexible and doing things differently uh, was sort of, you know, that was another layer uh, of learning for me. And uh, I worked for him for several years and loved the work. Uh, it was incredibly exciting. It was a time when that part of Florida was just beginning to boom and there were investors coming in from Europe, money was flowing in, people were doing deals. Uh, and it was a really exciting time to be involved in that kind of work. 
And along the way, I needed to make a trip to New Orleans. And I had been told by uh, one of our investors, hey, there's this art dealer you should meet. And he said, you, you know, you need to talk to him. He might be interested in investing in the project. So I called on this guy um, and he was an older man. He had a very heavy Eastern European accent. And he was like, what are you doing selling real estate? That's ridiculous. You need to come sell art. Why don't you come and work for me? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I love my job. And, you know, we sort of left. And but then I started thinking about it. And I thought, wow, selling art. It, I had never thought about that as a career. Um, I was intrigued. So I called him up and said, you know, tell me more. And he said, well, look, you don't know anything. And that was true. Uh, he said, you probably need to go study uh, at Christie's or Sotheby's for a while. And, you know, I'll send you to school, but you have to commit to working for me for at least two years afterwards. And at the same time, uh, I was getting a little restless in Destin. Uh, I found it was you know, it was a very tiny community at that time. I had no privacy and I tend to be a, a very private person. And it was like, okay, I need a change. I need to do something different. And so I said, yes, and I packed it up and I moved to New Orleans. Um, I had an experience that was um, pretty awful at that gallery. Uh, this guy, uh, it tur turned out to be very much a, a predator sort of personality. He uh, often hired young women, uh, he, particularly girls from the country who might not um, have family or means to stand up to him or resources or a way out. Um, and I, I know I was lucky to have avoided that, but he, uh, you know, I started working there in the gallery and I ended up getting accepted in the Christie's Arts course in London and I said, okay, I got accepted, I'm ready to go. And he backed out on the deal. He, um, he made physical overtures. I mean, it was, it, it was the first time I'd ever had to deal with anything like that. And um, I was really not prepared for how awful it made me feel. Uh, I, I felt like, you know, did I encourage him? Did I make him think that, you know, you start to blame yourself for any piece of it and of course, I wasn't to blame in it, but that was my much younger self then. And anyway, I finally got out from that and got myself to London and had a, a wonderful year there, uh, really learning art history, learning uh, decorative arts and uh, having access to all the collections and auctions that they have at Christie's. And that, there was a wonderful, wonderful formative experience. And then when I came back to New Orleans afterwards, I decided to get into business for myself. I had met a lot of art dealers and uh, as one often does when, when young, you think, well, I could do that. I could do it better than that person. And of course I had a lot to learn and uh, I decided to go into business for myself. So I started on a shoestring. Uh, I had a friend who was an artist and she and her husband had an upstairs space in the central business district, but it was in an old uh, townhouse and it was on the second floor. And my friend said, look, if you will show our work, you can have the front half for a gallery and you don't have to pay rent. I was like, I can work with that. And uh, I set up shop and you know started finding artists and that was the beginning of it. But uh, after about three months there, I realized 
it was really difficult to run a business with uh, very little capital and also with, uh, without having a street presence. And the building next to us was for sale. And I don't know how I knew it, but I knew that if a building was empty uh, in Louisiana, you couldn't get insurance on it. And I said, you know what, I'm just gonna call the guy who owns it and see if he'll let me use his space. So I called the owner up and uh, he agreed to meet me for coffee. And I said, look, I'm starting this business. I have no money, um, but how about if you let me get in there, I'll clean up the space, make it look good. And I really can't pay much rent, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, a few hundred dollars or something at the time. And he said, all right, well, you can have the rent, but, you know, $10 a year. So that was, uh, I was very, very lucky in that. And having that free rent uh, for the first three years I was in business is really what made it possible to build a business that lasted for, gosh, almost 24 years. Wow. And so was that on Julia Street? Is that the place you were? The first one was on Barone Street. And uh, yeah, and the owner of the building uh, finally sold the building. Actually, no, I think I think he died. And it went back to uh, his other partner, uh, but who offered me the same deal. But anyway, at a certain point, I figured out it's like I needed to move to Julia Street where uh, I'd be more in the middle of things. So so were you 24 years as an art dealer altogether, or was that just in that one space or? Yeah, altogether, I was, I don't know, three or four years in that first location before I moved to Julia Street. And, uh, and then I was in two different locations on Julia, but just two blocks apart. And so what was it like being an art dealer? How did you like it? What were the ups and downs? What was the good part? What was the bad part? You know, the great joy in being an art dealer is, uh, for me, it was all about finding the art and uh, getting those introductions to new artists and figuring out what would be a fit with my personal aesthetic, what would work with the other gallery, you know, artists that I was showing, what did I think might sell in New Orleans. And, you know, I have a, a very particular taste and sometimes I, I I, I wanted to show things that I knew they wouldn't sell. So when I was actually writing my plan for the gallery, I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself two, two months a year when I just show whatever I want and I'm not going to worry about whether it sells. I'm just going to show something, an emerging artist or something that's really, really challenging and kind of out there just because it's worthwhile. And so when I was planning each year, I would try to structure the calendar in such way to, you know, that I could balance, all right, something where I probably wouldn't sell it, but something really, really interesting and wonderful. Uh, and then something that might have a slightly more uh, commercial appeal. Although I was definitely not a commercial gallery in, in that world, um, but I loved it. Uh, Europeans always found my gallery. Um, you know, it was not a place that people would go to if they were just looking for a picture to put over the sofa. Uh, I rarely worked with decorators. I was a failure at that. I tried to, but I didn't have the patience to work with, uh, you know, a decorator. It's like, no, I need something a little more narrow or in different colors. And, you know, I understood the, the job that they were trying to do, but I was like, you don't buy the art last. You start with the art first. And then you Ooh, will not what they would say. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, it was kind of a difference of, you know, because decorators, it's usually the rug and the couch, right? Um, 
but anyway, it, it was, uh, it, it was a, a really a great joy. But again, uh, you know, I got into it, but it, it was very tough to earn a living doing it. I was, um, I had an infant son. I was newly divorced. My husband uh, left when my son was six months old. And, uh, you know, so I was, I was juggling a lot. And, uh, I but I have been really lucky. I mean, opportunities have also come my way. I mean, one day I was at the gallery and I had kind of the baby on my arm and I'm answering the phone and this sales rep uh, from a local magazine came in and, you know, we started talking and he said, look, you, you, you know, you seem to have a lot to say. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And he said, well, we're actually looking for an editor for the magazine. I, I want you to meet my boss. And, you know, do you ever write? And I was like, well, yeah, sure, all right. Cause you know, I've always done a good bit of that. Anyway, I ended up uh, becoming the editor of this magazine and it gave me income to that, you know really got me over some of the rough spots. And then that led to becoming publisher of the magazine. And then the company that owned the magazine uh, hired me in as their director of marketing and business development for a large hospitality company that had 13 divisions. So I continued to own the gallery, but I hired a manager. And then I had a day job that made it so the gallery could support itself and take care of the manager's salary, but I didn't have to have income from it. But I still got to have the, the, uh, the joy and the fun of finding art, curating shows, presenting a particular point of view, and you know, putting an idea like that in action. And uh, at this other company, I was really lucky. Uh, the company was in chaos. It was a family-owned business. And in three years, there were three different presidents of the company, and they were all different family members. But one thing- Ay, I caramba. Oh, <laughs> it was crazy. But in that kind of chaos, there is tremendous opportunity because basically they were busy dealing with their own dysfunctionality and I could do whatever I wanted. And there was no one telling me not to do something a certain way because, well, we've never done it that way. And uh, so I got to put together promotions and develop advertising and turn a, a tourist magazine into uh, more of a coffee table piece. And that was, that was a great joy. I love graphic design and I, I love print. I'm old school. I, I still love something in the hand and, uh, and good print. So, uh, so that was fun. I got to develop promotions and I also got to continue doing sales and, you know, I would have gallery openings once a month and meet clients on the weekend to sell the mart. And I don't know, it just kind of, kind of came together. And uh, I did that for a number of years. And I, I have to tell you post Katrina, uh, you know, there, there are these odd gaps in my memory. So if you ask me, well, what year was that? I literally couldn't tell you. I'd have to sit down and write it down and figure out when was that? Uh, but I, I worked, you know, I ran their marketing department for quite a while. And then a, uh, I was recruited to be the first sales manager at NOLA.com, which is our local uh, news portal uh, that was in partnership with the then Times-Picayune, which uh, has of course changed a lot in the last few years. But that was early days of internet. And again, it was an opportunity to reinvent and carve out a new space because nobody had ever done it before. We didn't know how to sell it. There weren't any rules. Uh, you, you'd call an ad agency wanting to you know, schedule a meeting with the media rep, thinking you would meet with one or potentially two people. And there would be 30 people in the room wanting to learn, all right, how does this work? How do you measure it? Uh, 
what does it cost and why? And so it was, uh, it was, it was fast paced and it, it was a very exciting time to be in the business. And, uh, I did that for quite a while until, uh, my ex-husband decided to sue for custody and I really became unable to function at uh, an executive level. I was under so much stress. Um, my, my ex was not only an attorney, he was also a judge. And in Louisiana, um, you know, politics is everything. And I felt very disadvantaged uh, in terms of how I was gonna manage the custody suit. and. Uh, I was really stressed, I wasn't sleeping, and I, I just, I wasn't effective at work. And my boss, who was a wonderful man, who is still a lifelong friend said, you know, you need to go. And he didn't fire me, he gave me the opportunity to resign, but I needed to be fired. And uh, I took some time out to regroup and deal with my custody suit and was able to retain custody of my son. Uh, but it, that was a, a constant for many, many years. My, my ex wanted to go back to court at least once a year on something. He never won any of the more than a dozen times I had to defend um, our custody situation, but it was, uh, it was tough. And, uh, but again, it, it teaches you uh, some toughness. It teaches you how to deal with uh, adversaries who you think are more powerful than you are and you find, okay, if I am persistent and thorough, um, I can prevail. And it wasn't about uh, me having more money. It was about just grinding through it and, and not giving up. And, you know, it was important. And I know a lot of women um, can relate to that. Um, let's see. So that got me through NOLA.com. And then um, I ended up being recruited to work for a company that's based here in New Orleans that's a, a global manufacturing entity. They produce modular plastic conveyor belting for every industry. And they created the category and that's, you know, it's enough to make your eyes glaze over and roll back in your head, but it's a, a highly technical product. And, you know, I had no engineering in my background. I was very light on business courses. And this company was engineering driven. And uh, I was hired as a business development analyst for the global packaging team. And my job was to figure out how to penetrate new industries and identify opportunities. And uh, I learned that, you know, engineers are great guys, but they have a hard time networking and closing sales. And so that was my piece of it. Um, if I had it to do again, I, I wish I had had more finance in my background and more Excel. I had to teach myself how to do that under pressure and on the job, and I wasn't very good at that. So things that should have been the easiest part of my job were hard for me, and things that some of my teammates struggled with, that they were easy for me, and I tended to discount them. Um, and I think, you know, looking back on it, it's like, all right, why did I devalue my contribution? It's like, Figuring out how to build a pivot chart is something I could have found a college intern to do. So, um, but I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to excel and do everything. And, you know, you really don't have to. But in, in the course of that work, I did love it. Uh, it taught me a very disciplined way of approaching business and a 
and how to approach a design process that wasn't graphic design. This was an engineering design process uh, in partnership with companies that if they tried your product and they retrofitted to this product from their old one, would cost thousands of dollars for every minute of downtime. And again, it was, all right, a certain amount of pressure, which for some reason I seem to need, um, but, but it was really, really interesting and a lot of fun. And uh, I had a, a global you know, client base and that was interesting. I can tell you that I have literally crawled every beer conveyor line in North America uh, from any of the major breweries. And in that environment, uh, it, it tends to be very male dominated. It would be rare to see a woman out on the manufacturing floor. And invariably there'd be this moment where we would connect and like, they'd be like, oh, it's not another, you know, another guy out servicing something. And there was just that kinship that you felt. And I remember one time we were working on a line and there'd been a, a back pressure and a, a blow up when there was like broken glass everywhere. And we had to crawl up underneath this conveyor belt and I'm up under there and I feel this tap on my shoulder and a woman was handing me some big pieces of folded cardboard to lie on so I wouldn't get hurt. And the engineer who was with me was like, well, why'd she give that to you? Nobody ever gives me anything. And I was like, well, because I'm a girl and she's a girl. I don't know. And it was just, it was, it was just funny. There were, there were so many moments uh, like that, you know, of guys uh, trying to overtalk, you know, and learning how to, again, assert myself uh, in a room full of engineers who, you know, were tough and practical people. And I, I had to learn their vocabulary because if I didn't learn their vocabulary, I was just going to be that marketing Twinkie and I was, you know, I'll be damned if I'm going to be the marketing Twinkie. It's like, no, I want to be known for who I am and the expertise I bring to this endeavor. Uh, but it, it was a phenomenal experience and I'm really grateful to have had it. So. Marguerite, what happened to your um, gallery? So did you keep the gallery going? I th I, my understanding was that it closed after Katrina because it got flooded. Am I correct? Uh, I did close after Katrina. Uh, in an odd uh, bit of irony, I had moved all of the art away from my gallery because downtown had flooded previously just in a heavy spring rain and my home had never flooded. So I brought all my archives and books and records and everything to my house. Uh, with Katrina, the gallery didn't flood, but my home did. I had uh, nine feet of water in a one-story house. So everything we owned was destroyed. Um, and fortunately we had, my son and I had evacuated ahead of the storm and uh, you know, but everything was gone. And anyway, I decided to close the gallery at that point. It just, you know, you couldn't even get back in the city for a month. And when I came back in and, you know, really got my head around the massive scale of the devastation, you know, once the city had drained again, uh, I, I just didn't think there would be any kind of a market for art for many years. And I was like, and my son was 12 and a half at the time, and he needed uh, to be in a better place than New Orleans was at that time. He was having uh, recurring nightmares about Blackwater rising and helicopter rescues and choosing which of his friends to save. And I'm like, okay, I've got to stabilize and normalize our environment so we can both heal and somehow carry on through all this. So the gallery closed um, and we ended up in North Carolina. So that was a uh, 
a forced reinvention, if you will. So you have really done so many different things. What is it that you're doing now, though? Because you're you're not doing the conveyor belt thing now, correct? No, not doing that. I haven't done that since Katrina. Um, okay. I found myself uh, in North Carolina. The company was willing for me to continue working and set up a remote office, but I couldn't travel. I couldn't. I didn't have the headspace for it, and I, you know, I, I resigned. I was like, I, I, I just. I didn't have it in me to carry on with that work. So I resigned and I ended up working at a school um, and teaching art. And then I went back to school myself. Uh, I was also in charge of fundraising and admissions. It was a small private school. And uh, I said, well, you know, I need to learn more about this. So I went back to school and got a degree in nonprofit management and was also working part-time in public radio at an HBCU in Winston-Salem. So getting into the full nonprofit work, and certainly Katrina played a huge role in that because it it was a complete reset in terms of um, how I thought about need and opportunity and resilience because, you know, I knew we were lucky. Yeah, I mean, we lost a house full of stuff, but no one in my family died. Uh, We were able to start over. We, you know, we... We were able to do that when thousands and thousands of uh, people in New Orleans were not. And seeing what people went through and how they suffered and how there was no access to anything that people need in any kinds of services, I just said, you know what, I can't go back to a corporate job after this. I have got to do something to help make this uh, a better place. And, you know, before Katrina, I, I think we all like to think of ourselves as, you know, decent, caring people. But I had no notion of how privileged I'd been, uh, my own white privilege as a part of that. Uh, working at an HBCU was certainly an eye-opening experience. And, you know, it was a, it was a time of um, really rethinking priorities, values, and one's sense of self and how, how I even defined myself. Because... Most of us are utterly and completely dependent on our social networks. Only, you know, we may not think we are until suddenly you're in an unknown environment. No one knows who you are or what you've done. And you may say, hey, I did X and they've never heard of it. It doesn't mean anything. They don't know the business that you used to work with or what you've done. And all of a sudden you're just a nobody. And it's not a fun experience, but it was a valuable experience. And it certainly um, was a piece of my learning about having access to opportunity and how opening doors for other people is really a crucial part of it, you know, of meaningful work. And uh, anyway, I ended up moving back to New Orleans. It took a long time after Katrina uh, because I didn't want to come back without a job. But uh, I was recruited to come work for Habitat for Humanity. So I was recruited to come work in New Orleans uh, as their advancement director, heading marketing and fundraising. And, you know, again, public radio as a nonprofit, a private school as a nonprofit, it's completely different than the way Habitat works. Habitat, yes, they build houses. Uh, They manage thousands of volunteers every year. But it's also you're running a construction company a mortgage company, a social services enterprise, uh, so there, and a restore, so you have retail. So you have five different 
divisions that all sort of feed under that one umbrella. So uh, it's been incredibly challenging work, but uh, and a great joy. But I mean, I literally am still learning something every day. And I've now been with Habitat for six years. Awesome. Oh my God. What, like, what a life. I hope your son knows all that you did for him. How old is he now? Uh, My son is 29. Oh, same as mine. Very cool. And he lives in New Orleans. Uh, He's now a real estate broker. Ah, into the, into one of the family businesses. Okay. Well, he deals in luxury real estate and I deal in poverty housing, but okay. What would you say, because we're coming to a close on our time here, Marguerite, what would you say is if you were talking to, you know, someone like me or like yourself, who is thinking of reinventing themselves after the age of 40, Mm -hmm. what are some one or two tips or tricks um, to what made you so successful? I mean, you went in and out of many different types of businesses. Um, How did you, did you just just give it a try? Were you terrified? I mean, what would you suggest to people? Because that, that's what's going to happen, especially in our post-COVID times. A lot of people are going to have to rethink what they're doing and what they're going to do in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and right now, I think all of us have to be doing that. And even Habitat is, we're in the midst of reinventing our business model because so many things have changed because of the pandemic. But for anyone who, who you know, who is facing a life change like that, I think it comes down to, uh, you know, taking that breath and, you know, it sounds hackneyed, but it's so true. It's like, be kind to yourself on that journey because it's hard and it's terrifying and scary stuff. And, you know, you, you want to, you want to find good mentors, friends who've, you know, walked the walk, who've lived through it. Uh, And, you know, I I remember when I was getting a divorce, my, my best friend, who's about 10 years older than I am said, look, getting a divorce, isn't going to solve all your problems. You're just going to exchange one set of problems for a different set that you hope you can manage better. And, that's also true with some of these life choices. You know, none of them are particularly easy, um, but I think it goes to figuring out what you really love and what you're good at and not discounting the things that you're good at because there are so many things that, you know, you, you, know, you might be doing every day, just like when I was, you know, networking and talking and, uh, you know, in that sales environment at Intralox. I was devaluing that skill, and yet none of the guys were able to do it effectively, um, or very few of them. And it's, uh, I think, finding your strengths and acknowledging them and then say, okay, where would that skill transfer somewhere else? And, you know, work your network, your friends, um, you know, and get their uh, view on like, hey, do you think I could be good at this? And, and, and just try. Uh, when I started working at that radio position, I mean, I was making straight commission on public radio. It was like no money for nothing. But if I hadn't taken that sort of low level, nothing job, I wouldn't have the job that I have today. And it, sometimes you have to take something that's not where you were or where you want to be to get to somewhere better. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And um, thank you for being so direct and so honest. And that's really a huge help for all of us Covey Clubbers. Thanks, Marguerite. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks for having me on. And I look forward to uh, continuing to follow you. Great. So I want to thank everybody for joining us on Reinvent Yourself with Leslie Jane Seymour. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Marguerite. And if you did, I hope you'll become a subscriber. Also leave us a comment or leave us some stars. That's how other people find out about us. If you know anybody who we should interview who is a fabulous reinventor, you can write to me, Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y at CoveyClub.com. And we will pick up the ball and we will chase after them. We are always looking for great inspirational stories and that show resilience and show how you keep moving, no matter how old you are or how many obstacles there are in front of you. And I hope also, if you like these kinds of stories, you'll come over to the Covey Club. Come over to CoveyClub.com. We have great content. We have fabulous classes that we do every single week where we are teaching you how to take care of yourself, how to grow, how to learn, how to expand, how to enjoy your life more even after age 40 and on. So come join us and be part of us. And thank you for being with us today.